We'll be reading this morning from Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 22. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lori. Good morning, Arcadia. Doing all right? All right. Um, Love those all of life interviews and uh, really appreciate Megan coming up and doing that. Now, of course, she has to stay for the second service, so that improves our attendance figures as well. Uh, And finally, it's always fun when somebody from Gilbert moves to Arcadia. Amen? Yeah. Yeah, that's a a really good thing. So I am wearing my Kansas City Royals polo this morning. There's a reason for that. We have a family in our congregation that I've known for years. There's people shaking their head. That is really sad. So now I'm going to press into this even harder, Rich. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, we have a family here who's uh, one of their sons. um, uh, Works for the Kansas City Royals last six years. He's been the and he sent me some shirts and, and at the beginning of the uh, American League Championship Series, I, I just told him, I said, if you guys beat the Orioles, <laughs> there's no way. If you guys beat the Orioles, Kansas City on Sunday morning and, and to preach in. And so that's, yeah, so I kind of lost a bet, I guess you would say. <clears throat> I'm good at that. That's my spiritual gift, losing bets. You want to win bets? Come see me. So we are in uh, Romans chapter 14, but I haven't done this in a few weeks, so I want to go back to Romans 12 and just remind you what all of this stems from, everything that we've been doing since August, since we started Romans 12. Uh, The first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrine and the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. And then at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul says, therefore, in view of these mercies, here's how you're to live. This is, this is the praxis or the practical application <clears throat> of our lives in Christ. And so uh, I, want, I want you to see again where this stems from. His thesis statement for the last one-third of this, of this letter, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and you sisters are involved in this too. Don't let that confuse you. By the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we had Megan up here, and she is living her entire life all for Christ. She understands that the gospel isn't just something for Sunday morning, and it isn't just something that you you use when it's convenient or when you need it, but she lives her entire life 
as a spiritual sacrificial act of worship for Jesus Christ because of what he has done for who for her and then in verse 2 he he adds to this he says you are no longer to be conformed to this world you you no longer value things the way the world values them we don't buy in we, we're still in the world but we don't buy into the value systems of the world so don't be conformed to that but rather you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that word transformed is the greek word metamorpheo when you come to christ you experience a metamorphosis you are a new creation And this is going to transform everything that you do. It's going to cause you to think differently. We're going to end today with that passage where Paul says, have have in you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus as well. So we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that by testing, you and I are going to be able to discern what the will of God is. So we can live by the will of God. We, We read his word. We pray. We're in community with other Christians. What is good and acceptable and perfect? So we're going to be able to live by his will. And then... In verse 9, he goes even deeper and he says, all of this then should be manifest in the primary Christian principle or ethic, which is genuine love. Let your love be genuine. Do, uh, let your love be genuine. You are to abhor what is evil and hold fast or cling to what is good. And then he goes on from that point on, from chapter 12, verse 9, he goes on and he just starts to unpack what love is. And that's what we've been doing. So in chapter 12, we understand that love is, is uh, service and other-oriented. In chapter 13, we begin to understand that love is, sub- love is submission. And then in chapter 14, we've been discovering that love is an agent of unity in the church in spite of our diversity, in spite of the diverse ways that God has gifted us and, and wired us. And again, these latter passages in Romans from chapter 12 on are conducive to a lot of discussion about application. And so what we're going to do again today is I'm going to reread this passage that Lori just read for us, and I'm going to go a little bit deeper, and then I'm going to spend some time in the text after I reread it. And then uh, the last 15 minutes or so, we're going to get to some really hard application. By hard, I mean we're going to dig into application. We're just going to apply, 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 apply. So let me reread this passage for us again. Chapter 14, starting in verse 13, Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. Now, that, that word translated pass, judge, pass judgment, again, if you understand, and I, I don't pretend to understand it the way they did, but if you were in the first century context, you knew that the word Paul was using there was not just a passing judgment. You are passing the type of judgment as though you were the judge and the jury. You had had the trial against this person and you have rendered a verdict of judgment against them. And you're not just judging them, but essentially you're condemning them for their behavior. This is very serious and deep language that Paul is using here. He's saying, don't do that. Obviously, we have to make judgments in life, but you're not going to be the, the judge and the jury and you're not going to render a verdict on people, at least without not, without, without, not without having a conversation about it. And then he says, don't put a stumbling block or hindrance. When you judge people like that, you're putting a stumbling block in front of them. You're, you're, you're hindering them from the gospel. You're hindering them from knowing God even better through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting. That word uh, hindrance is the translation of uh, 
the Greek word scandalon. And you get exactly no guesses to figure out what English word we get from the Greek word scandalon. Paul is saying this is a scandal in the church and a scandal against the person that you are judging when you do this. Verse 14, I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. I may be okay with having a beer, but this person isn't, and so if they think it's not okay, they've done their work. Last week we talked about being fully convinced in your own mind. If they've done their theological work, we have to respect their position. We can have a discussion about it, but we at least have to start from a position of respect and honor. We need to respect that position, and it is, in fact, we need to treat it as though it is unclean for that person who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And there's the key to this whole thing. There's the key to this whole thing, and we'll unpack that. The key to this whole thing, the key to this entire section of Scripture is love. He keeps coming back to what genuine love is. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. They may not understand the gospel exactly the same way you do, but Jesus still died for them. You don't have any right to destroy that work of Christ in uh, their life. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. That's a double entendre there that we're going to unpack later. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So here you go. Paul is really presenting his case. It's not only a scandal, but it's wrong. Just in case you thought there was a little wiggle room there, it's a scandal and it's wrong to do this. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, Some people look at that passage and go, oh, see, there you go. The Christian faith should never be exercised in the public sphere. Uh, Our faith is to be private. That is not what Paul is saying here. Uh, Our faith is to be communal and it is to be exercised in the world. It should be manifested in the world. All of life is all for Christ. What Paul is saying here is that in the midst of these disputable matters where there's opinions and God hasn't spoken clearly or at all to, uh, there are times when we're going to keep that to ourselves in order to promote unity. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about how that's manifested later. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's an interesting statement. And of course, we'll look at that as well. Now, some have, I would argue with their tongue in their cheek, have made the argument that the main point of these 10 verses, the main point of this passage, is that Christians should only drink alone. Now, here's the funny thing. That may be a little bit truer than we realize, okay? But I would argue that the big idea is this. It should be up on the screen. Here's the, here's the real big idea of these 10, 10 verses. In love, our freedom is guided by what's best for others. In love, our freedom is submitted to that love and therefore our freedom is guided by what is best for others. And Paul gives us his thesis statement in verse 13. Those who are mature in their faith, those who would be described as strong, understand the freedom they have in Jesus 
They must be careful that the exercise of that freedom builds other people up and does not tear them down or seek to destroy them. And again, if you weren't here last week, uh, we're going to define for you again the idea of the weak in faith and the strong in faith. The strong in faith are those who see the gospel this way, that all things are now permissible, all things have been made clean, but not all things are necessarily profitable or beneficial. So the strong in faith is very grace-focused. They understand grace pretty well, unfortunately, sometimes to the point of licentiousness and arrogance, and that's where Paul says we get into a little bit of trouble. The weaker in faith, the brother or sister who's weaker in faith, they're the ones that kind of say this, Very few things are permissible, and I have appointed myself as the final arbiter of what is and is not permissible and what is and is not beneficial. They are very law-focused, very behavior-oriented, right behavior-oriented. So the strong, some of them, the strong in faith, they have the tendency to look down on the childish legalism of those who are weak in faith. But here's the irony of those who are strong in faith that do that. The irony is that while they're running around yelling, grace, 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 they're actually showing very little of it to their weaker brother or sister. That's a problem. That would be called hypocrisy. Okay? So here's an example that happened to me years and years ago. Very young in my faith, I would be considered a weak Christian. I, was very, I, I thought that Christianity was just another way of being able to inflict law and rules on other people. And so I was at a church gathering um, and in somebody's house. There was maybe 30 of us there. And there was a guy there who was my age, a good friend of mine, who had been a Christian much longer than me, was much more mature in his faith. And, and I kind of looked up to him and I kind of felt like maybe he could be a mentor to me and help, could help me along with these things. And he's standing at this, this sort of church, like a small group or an RC gathering, and he's got a beer in his hand and he's drinking his beer. And so I walked up to him and I asked what I perceived to be an innocent question and one just seeking some information. And I said, are you sure that you should be drinking that beer here? And his response was one that I would, I would describe as arrogant, uh, emotional, dismissive, and one that let me know right away that there was not going to be any discussion, regardless of whether there was going to be loving discussion, there was not going to be any discussion about this, and I had absolutely, who was I to, th- to, to think uh, I was that I was judging him? And it was, it was kind of hurtful in it, and it took me aback, and, and here's what it did. Here's, here's, it had the exact opposite effect that Paul wants us to have here. In fact, for a while, it actually just drove me deeper into my legalism. Because I looked at his response and I thought, he didn't have a point, he has a problem. And so then I, now I'm judging him even further because he couldn't at least just engage in the, in the conversation and have a, have, a, have a nice response with it and try to explain to me why this was okay. So that's the problem with some who are strong in faith. But the challenge with the weak is that the weak in faith often just make the, the generalized judgment that the strong in faith are just completely unspiritual and they're going straight to hell. And by, by acting out the way that Paul describes both of these groups, the weak and the strong, they're violating the cardinal Christian ethic of love, which is the key component of this letter from chapter 12, verse 9 on. And this, this, when we don't act in love, when we don't embrace and manifest the, the, the Christian ethic of genuine love, it causes disunity within our community in, in the bride of Christ, but it also causes 
disrepute to the gospel for those who are outside of the bride of Christ. And that's a problem. And so possibly the best way to summarize this passage is what Martin Luther said five or six hundred years ago. He said this, the Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to no one. The Christian is also the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. We are free and we're subject to no one, but at the same time, we are dutiful and we're subject to everyone. That's the line that you and I are called to watch. Walk. And I know this may seem a very strange assertion at first blush for some of you, but this passage is really about idols. It's about idol worship. Stuart Scott, not the ESPN commentator, this is a biblical scholar, Stuart Scott says this about, he, this is his definition of idols. It should be up on the, on the screen. When we make something other than God the primary focus and goal, we are worshiping an idol. And I want you to hear this. I want you to understand. Some of us can take really good doctrine, good biblical doctrine, and we begin to worship that biblical doctrine more than we worship Jesus, and we've made the biblical doctrine an idol. An idol doesn't have to be something that starts as something that you and I would view as bad. An idol can start as something that's very, very good, but then we make it a God thing, and that's when it becomes an idol. It becomes a bad thing. So his, his, his definition continues. An idol is anything that we make more important than God and his will in our attention, desire, devotion, choices. That is a great devotion, uh, definition of, of what an idol is. So if we find it more important to exercise our freedom than to freely and compassionately consider the other in the midst of this, then ladies and gentlemen, we have an idol. We have an idol. But but if you also struggle to allow the more mature Christian in love to allow, to, to explain why what it is that they are doing is not a sin and not in violation of the gospel, then you have made legalism your idol. So this is about idol worship. Paul says this about idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And again, it's really interesting because in these three verses, he starts with the example again of food, of, of meat. He, so he's still talking about that even in, in his first letter to the church at Corinth. But right after that first statement, he, he broadens this and makes it about love. It makes the, the opposite of idol worship is when we express love. So listen very closely to this. Again, we should have this up on the screen. He writes, Now, concerning food offered to idols, that would be meat offered to idols, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Here's what he's saying. All of us possess some knowledge. Our knowledge is either that we have freedom in Christ or our knowledge is, is that we know what's wrong for other Christians to exercise in. So all of us possess some kind of knowledge and then, he, and then he writes, this knowledge, in quotes, puffs up, makes us pride and pr- proud and arrogant. So this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So if you're running around telling everybody what you know and what you know is better, you don't know anything. That's what he's saying right there. There's the irony there. So if anyone imagines that he knows anything, you don't know anything yet. You still don't know God the way you should. But if anyone loves God, then he is known by God. So the problem with idols in this Romans passage, back to Romans 14, 13 through 22 now, there's three of them. Number one, your idols can cause others to, str- to, str- to stumble. Your idols can cause others to stumble. The strong in faith may not be doing anything wrong in your freedom. 
Yet we must work at being aware of perceptions. That's not fair. How can I control what anybody else thinks? It doesn't matter whether or not it's fair. Was it fair that Jesus went to the cross for your sins? I mean, I can pull out that old, old stick, you know. It's not fair. It may not be fair. It may not even be reasonable in your mind, but we still need to be aware. That's part of what being in community means. It means that you're going to be aware of what's going on around you and be sensitive and have some sensitivity toward this. Now, it doesn't mean that we go and run and hide. This problem is not solved by seclusion or isolation, but it does mean that we take caution with what we do and we realize that we're going to live in some tension. But it also doesn't mean that if we're one of the weaker in faith that we shrink from asking the strong in faith questions and are willing to learn and grow rather than to judge them. Here's the second thing. Allowing idols to rule in your life is unloving. Paul just flat out says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If, if you're allowing idols to rule in your life, you are not loving. If you're an idol worshiper, you're not a lover. Anytime we put idols ahead of God and His people, we are not living by love. And then number three, idols interfere with the work of God and the kingdom of God. That would be right in verse 20. And for a minute now, I'm just going to talk to those who are strong in their faith. That, that little phrase there where Paul says, you are destroying the work of God, that is a double entendre. If by judging somebody who's weak in faith, arrogantly judging them and putting them off and dismissing them, if by doing that you're causing them to stumble and, and giving them a hindrance in their faith, you are in fact destroying a work of God. God has saved that person through His Son, Jesus Christ, and now you're coming along and destroying that work. Who do you think you are? That's the first way you're destroying the work of God. The second way that you're destroying the work of God is, is, that, is that it becomes more difficult for the church to do kingdom work of God. Because those outside of the church begin to see all of our dissension and divisions and factions and our arguing and our backbiting and our quarreling and they look at us in the church and they go, you're just like the rest of the world. You're judgmental, unloving, preference-based idol worshipers. So are you a preference-based idol worshiper or are you someone who loves? Those who pride themselves in their conviction of freedom, they need to be the first to give up their rights. Those who pride themselves in the conviction of freedom need to be the first to give up their rights. And yet, yet, we do need to understand that the stronger are not simply going to bow to every opinion, every complaint, and every judgment. More on that later. Hold that in abeyance. Now look at verses 14 and 15. Let me reread those for you. Paul says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But if you, uh, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now we need to wrestle with this at least a little bit. Again, in Paul's context, one of the main challenges in the Roman church was, was food. Literally, in the Roman church, what was happening was the Jewish Christians would not sit down to a meal with Gentile Christians if there was meat at the table because of the possibility that that meat had been offered uh, to idols, that it was involved in somehow uh, being sacrificed to idols. Uh, and that would be a problem because in their culture and in their time, eating a meal with someone, it was known as table fellowship, was one of the most intimate 
and most community-building things that you could do with another person. And so now if you've broken this table fellowship over this, this is a huge problem. And so I would bring that into the 21st century and say it this way. Paul is bringing that same message to you and I in 21st century Arcadia. And he's not just bringing it to Arcadia. He's not just bringing it to our zip code. He's not just bringing it to our neighborhood. He is walking into your house and plopping it down on your kitchen table. You cannot ignore this. My fellow redemption Arcadians, if you and I, in our weak and strong issues, are breaking table fellowship or any other kind of fellowship with each other, that is a problem. And Paul says we need to get that figured out and get it under control. This passage forces you and I to understand that our faith is actually communal. That we live out our faith in community. And because we're people, that means we're going to have to work at it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it is of righteousness, peace, and joy. How? In the Holy Spirit. So three things there on verse 17. First of all, the kingdom of God is not about externals. It's about eternals. We need to be aware and cognizant of what is eternal, not necessarily external, because those aren't as important. And again, a good way to measure this would be this question that I mentioned last week. Before you engage you might want to ask yourself, what does this really matter in the eternal scheme of things? And you might find out that it doesn't really matter that much. Second of all, this all goes back to the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul says, it's about righteousness, peace, and joy, but you can't do that on your own. It's in the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, just try to live the Christian life, whatever you think that is, without the power of the Holy Spirit. Just go ahead, try it, try it, go ahead. You're going to end up frustrated, angry. It stinks. It is not a life worth living, believe me. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to be God in your life, not you. And then third, peace with God is the secret to peace with others. Peace with God is the secret to peace with others. Ultimately, when the stronger Christian looks down on the weaker Christian, he or she is in fact someone who is still at war with God. The fact that he or she still feels the need to act as judge and jury and as everyone's personal Holy Spirit demonstrates that they don't have true peace with God. And I could say the same thing about the weaker in faith too. This comes back to whether or not you have peace with God and are allowing Him to be God. And then verse 21. Let me reread that as well. It is good. I'm going to come back to that word translated good. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or your sister to stumble. That word good is actually more often and more usually translated as the word beautiful. It is a beautiful thing when you and I behave in such a way that we show respect and honor for those with whom we would disagree. That's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm not arguing that freedom is not a right. We have the right to be free in Christ and to interpret that freedom according to the word and according to the Holy Spirit in our lives. We, we have that right. However, we must accept that while freedom is a right, it is not a guide for conduct. Freedom is not a guide for conduct. Love serves that purpose. Love is our guide for conduct. Freedom is submitted first to love. In love, our freedom is limited by what is best for others. In love... 
our freedom is limited by what is best for others. So here we go. Let's talk some application here. Number one, there should be slides on this as well. Number one, we need to pursue mutual upbuilding. It's verse 19. May not be the best grammar in the world. I get that. But you get the point, right? We need to pursue mutual upbuilding. In love, our freedom is limited by what is best for others. And here you go. Sometimes that means submission, and sometimes that means instruction. Sometimes that means submission. Oh, now you're getting confusing. Right? This is going to be really hard. You mean I'm going to have to actually think about this? Yes. You're going to have to think and pray and read Scripture and talk to other people. Yes. You're going to have to put some skin in this game, my brothers and sisters, all right? Okay? Now, you and I can build up others in two ways. There's two ways that we can build others up in the body of Christ. Number one, we can submit to others, especially in an effort to build unity, even when it feels like um, it's unfair or unreasonable to do so. We can do that. Part of being strong is, in fact, the ability to submit. That's chapter 13. That's Romans chapter 13. Part of being strong is the ability to submit by the power of the Holy Spirit. But also, number two, we can also encourage others and build them up by instructing others in both love and truth in order to help them grow. And yeah, this is going to take patience. It's going to take grace. And you're not going to be able to just roll over people. You're going to have to slow down and take some time. And, and this takes discernment as well. Knowing when and how to have these conversations is really important. So let me give you just some insights on that. There's three things that we need to do when we're going to decide to have these conversations with people whom we disagree. Number one, let your emotions cool first. Take some time. You don't have to deal with it right now. Take some time. How many of you have ever responded emotionally to something and found out later that was probably not the best response. If you don't raise your hand, you're a liar and you need to confess your sin to me right now. We have all done this. I've done it. We've all done this. So we need to let our emotions cool. And then number two, maybe the hardest one for our uh, culture and especially the younger generations, this needs to be done face-to-face in a good environment. Oh, you mean Facebook? No. Absolutely not. Don't attempt to do this through texting, tweeting, emailing, Facebooking. I would say not even Skype. Unless you're in completely different geographical areas of the United States or the world, you need to figure out a time when you can get together physically. You know, long before we had Facebook, we used to get our actual faces together occasionally. So, so get your faces together in a good environment and have this discussion there. That's number two. And then number three, you need to show empathy. What's empathy? Empathy is putting yourself in the position of the other and trying to see their point from their perspective. In other words, you've got to listen. You need to, you need to show critical understanding, but you also need to be willing to submit yourself to at least listening to their point of view. So chill face-to-face and empathize. That's how you practice this discernment. Now, one other thing about mutual upbuilding. Mutual upbuilding can also be understood as competition. Let me explain what I just said, too. Because the minute you and I, 21st century Western individualistic culture, we hear the word competition, we, we hear it as zero-sum game, glass parking lot, destroying the other. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm going back to the original understanding and meaning of the word competition, the etymology of this word, which is two Latin words brought together that literally means to strive together so that both improve. Somebody is going to win. Somebody is going to be better. We have to resign ourselves to that. Not everybody is going to be a champion, but the purest idea of competition is that we strive together so that both get better, both improve. That is the idea behind this. So so what we need to do is we need to attempt to outdo one another in building each other up. We need to outdo each other in showing honor and respect and in building each other up. When I was a kid, I played a lot of tennis. I was just a little bit better than average at tennis. I took a lot of lessons. I just, you know, I I did as best I could. I took a lot of lessons, played a lot of matches. Let me tell you something about tennis, and I'm sure this is true for just about anything else, okay? I took lessons, and the lessons helped me. But when I made my biggest improvements in my tennis game, it was when I played up, and I played somebody better than me. If you're somebody who's weaker in faith, if you're somebody who who is a new Christian but still doesn't really understand the gospel and, and grace and what all the implications are, you need to play up. You need to find stronger Christians and you need to sit with them and soak it up. That's what you, you need to find a good RC where there's wonderful leadership and people who are willing to pour their lives into you. You need to play up. So it's this idea that the weak should hang with the strong so that they can learn. Application point number two, we need, to, we, need to, we need to judge ourselves rather than being so quick to judge others. We need to be as diligent about judging ourselves as we are judging others. And this, this goes along with this whole idea starting at the beginning of chapter 12 of renewed thinking, sober judgment, and love. And this goes both ways. We've got to understand this goes both ways. Both the weak with the strong, the strong with the weak, Whoever it is, whatever it is, whatever the issue is, it goes both ways. James Davidson Hunter writes this. This is really good. And again, we should have it up there. Yeah, here you go. Christian history, alas, he's showing dejected resignation there with that word alas. Christian history, alas, shows numerous examples of people utterly earnest about non-essentials who have felt at liberty to break the unity of the church for the sake of their particular fetish. Amen? That is so true. We all really need to do a much better job of rather than seeking the speck in everybody else's eye, start dealing with the trunk of the tree that's in our own eye. We need to be a lot better about that. Here's number three. We're called in the midst of this to practice reason and discernment. We can't take every offense to its logical conclusion lest there never be any activity in the church at all. Let let me explain what I mean. Here's what I mean. Our conduct is never going to be controlled by the narrowest mind in the congregation. We're not going to have a business meeting here at Redemption Arcadia and say, who's got the narrowest mind here? Now you tell us what we can and can't do. That's never going to happen. So how do we make, what we need to be asking is how do we make room for things that the Bible says there should be some room for or that the Bible doesn't even speak to? Is there room for those things? For instance, wine or tobacco. Those are disputable matter issues that constantly come up. This is an opportunity for loving instruction to help some of the weaker learn a little bit more. So here you go. Kent Hughes 
who's a pastor and an author, and he pastors a church in the Midwest, he writes this in one of his books. Uh, He once had a very, very pious parishioner walk up to him and say this. Nowhere does Scripture record that Jesus smiled or laughed. Therefore, the church is potentially at its unholiest when we are smiling and laughing. Now, we sent that guy to Redemption Tempe. I just want to let you know, okay? Not here, all right? But you see what happens when we... This, this has to take some reason and discernment. Here's another one. Uh, Donald Barnhouse, he's a great pastor from last century, uh, like a, more, almost 100 years ago. In 1928, he's speaking at a Christian conference. There's this big Christian conference. And he's approached by a couple of ladies who are attending the conference, Okay? And they walk up to him and they say, Pastor Donald, uh, do you understand that there are some women here who are not wearing stockings? <laughs> and they, they were seriously scandalized. This is terrible. They're not, they're not wearing stockings. And, and Barnhouse replied, he said, oh, that's interesting. You know, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They were shocked. Literally, they were, with incredulity, they said, really? The Virgin Mary never wore stockings? And then he said this, right, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown in the world. Stockings were first, in fact, worn by prostitutes in the 15th century. So you can see how this conversation was going. Later, ladies of nobility began to take up the practice, but of course, in other words, the, the prostitutes were wearing them, and then the ladies of the upper echelon, the wealthier ladies, the ladies of royalty, they began to wear stockings. They were rudely greeted at first by their, by their friends and their peers and their, and their underlings and all that, but eventually it caught on, he said, and now today, almost all women enjoy wearing stockings. But they, he, but he reminded them, they, but they were first worn by prostitutes. You need to understand that. Now, I know both of these, the Hughes case, the Barnhouse case, these are very extreme, but they also make the case for seeing how we have to have some discernment and discussion for many, of, if not most, of these issues. Let me tell you, here's a couple, just a couple more. I was once a part of a church, and they told me that you could not, a pastor could not rightly divide the Word of God. The, a pastor had no business preaching unless he was preaching in constructed pants with a crease. I had another friend... So, in other words, the way I'm dressed right now, I'm disqualified from preaching. You have to have rightly divided pants, apparently, before you can rightly divide the word. I, I, I don't see it anywhere in Scripture, but, okay. Here, another friend of mine, this is maybe 10, 12 years ago, a friend of mine, he's a pastor, he has a goatee, and he had a group of people from the church come to him and say that his facial hair disqualified him from serving communion. We're not going to allow those kinds of things then to, to then rule the church. Okay? We need to remember the kingdom of God is about eternals and not externals. Number four, doing something that does not come from faith is sin. Isn't that an interesting definition of sin? See, you and I think of sin and we think it's obviously some heinous, hurtful, evil act, right? But not here. Here, sin is when you've done your homework, and you've made a decision that a particular thing is wrong, that, that, that it shouldn't be done, and so you're not going to do it. Let's say smoking a pipe. You've decided smoking a pipe is wrong. Now, not everybody agrees with you in the church. Not everybody's going to agree with you, but you've made that determination. Now you're in community with other Christians, and there are some who smoke pipes. You're going to start to, fe- believe it or not, you're going to start to feel a pull you're going to start to maybe feel a little bit tempted to smoke that pipe until you are willing to smoke that pipe out of the freedom in the gospel and rather than out of conviction 
you're going to be sinning. That's what Paul is saying. Behaving out of compulsion and not faith is a recipe for sin. That's what Paul is saying. You need to understand grace. That's ultimately what we're trying to get at. Number five. Love is as much an art as it is black and white. And I want you to hear that. This is really important. Love is not just about principles. It's also about knowing how to do it. Having a feel for it. Knowing the timing of it. It's about knowing when and how just as much as knowing what. I teach communicate, COM 100 at Paradise Valley Community College. And when we get to this section in, in the curriculum, I always ask this question. Is leadership a science or an art? What's the answer to that? Anybody? Yes. It's both. That's exactly right. You get it. You know, John Maxwell writes the book, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. That would be a scientific leadership book, a, a, a book about leadership that's scientific. But you and I as leaders know that it's not always just a principle. It's also that you know, being able to intuit and feel and know when and know what to say and all that stuff. Here you go. You can take the greatest comedic material in the world. Let's, here you go. Take Jim Gaffigan's comedic material. Give it to me. I'm going to butcher it. You see the difference there? He's got great material. But if you don't have a feel for comedy, you're going you're to struggle here. So love is similar. We, we try to teach principles of love, but it's also up to you to go out and practice love, to do love, to make some mistakes, to learn from your mistakes, to start to get a feel for how love really works. Some of us are really clunky and awkward at love. You know what I mean? Ask my wife. Some of you are... No, I'm kidding. It's a, I, I'm a little clunky and awkward at it. I, I got to work at it. And it also means that we need to be careful about judging others and realize the tension that we live in. Isn't it funny? Jesus was a friend to sinners. Jesus hung out with the revelers and the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the ASU football fans, all of those people, and he just got hammered for it, right? And then then there's John the Baptist who did none of that stuff and people accused him of having a demon. There's going to be tension here and with some people you're never going to be able to win. That's just the way we look at it. You've got to be careful. When you begin to love, there's going to be tension. And part of loving means that there will be times when you're judged for an indulgence and rather than stopping the indulgement, you start a conversation because that conversation might be what's best for the other in that moment. See how that works? Jesus violated the Sabbath a couple times in the Gospels, remember? And rather than stopping His violation of the Sabbath... He pushed back. He started a conversation instead. A very good conversation. You see, the gospel calls us to lay aside our rights in the interest of love. And nowhere is that more manifest than in the incarnation. And and that incarnation is what Paul says we should use as not only our example, but our fulfillment of this principle. Let me just read this. Let me close by reading to you. Philippians chapter, three, chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's how we're to live. Do, do nothing out of righteous arrogance, self-righteous arrogance, but in humility and love 
Consider others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Many of the other translations say, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. You need to look at the world and look at others and and look at God through the mind of Jesus Christ. That's how you're supposed to do this. And then he gives Jesus as his sermon example, which is awesome. He says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. He, he, didn't, he didn't say, I'm not going down there to serve humanity. I'd rather stay here and be God and have all the advantages of that. He said, no, I'm going to go. I didn't count uh, equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you see in that passage that Jesus is not just our example, but He's the fulfillment of it. He did it first. And He did it to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, you and I have the power by His Holy Spirit to do the exact same thing. He's our example, so we know what to do. But He also gives us the power to do it by His Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for this word and this challenge. And so God, I, I, I do pray continuously that we would be a church that would love, love in a gospel way, love in a way that abhors evil and clings fast, holds fast to what is good, and love in a way that is manifest in our community in such a way that others will see our love and know that we have the power of Christ in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.